0: cardiology for the boards. so needless to say that cards is always going to be high yield when we talk about the board exams and the way we're going to present this is I'm going to show you the outline for our journey through cardiology Of course I'm always going to integrate because that's what the boards want integrating between ID and cardiology pulmonary and cardiology that's where they're going to get the most questions you know on the board exams. So what is going to be our journey for the next few hours to days depending on how fast we go? it's going to be the changing paradigm of cardiovascular disease. Then we're going to talk about different risk factors. And you know, when we talk about high blood pressure, that usually is going to be when we talk about nephrology, but I will talk about some of the unique things associated with the ACC guidelines in regards to hypertension. But the biggest thing is going to be hyperlipidemia. That's where all the questions come from. We'll spend a lot of time there. We'll talk about cardiac imaging as a whole. I'm going to talk about X-rays, we'll talk about echo. The big part of this section is gonna be stress testing. We're gonna have a lot of questions from there. Then we'll talk about invasive hemodynamic monitoring. This will be a great time to talk about shock. So we'll focus on all types of shock, including things like septic shock. But of course, cardiogenic shock will be a huge role there and talk about, well, how and why we do a swan ganz catheter. Then of course, we'll talk about cardiac stenting. Once we um, cover this part, we're gonna be all set up for all the clinicals. And probably the biggest chunk of what we're gonna be talking about is the acute coronary syndromes. And we'll have all the different scenarios with up-to-date information. We'll also include stable in China. Another big chunk is gonna be congestive heart failure. And then we'll end off with a valvular heart disease. So we have a, a lot in store for us, so let's get started. What better way than to get the blood pumping, you know, than to start off with a question? 69-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-month, follow-up, three months after AOO and non-ST elevation MI and NSTEMI. She was assessed to be low-risk. Uh, she was treated medically. Since the event, the acute event, the patient has done well. She has no chest discomfort or shortness of breath. She has hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, Her meds are an ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, statin, and dual antiplatelet therapy. She has modified her diet and begun performing physical activity five days a week. Wow, I am impressed. Um, On exam, the patient is afebrile, normal tensive, non-tachy, non-tachypneic, BMI is 26. A normal carotid upstroke without carotid bruise. Uh, JV pulsations are normal. Great. Uh, S1 and S2 without murmurs. Lung fields are clear, distal pulses are normal, and there's no peripheral edema. Labs show that she's adherent to her lipid therapy. She's at her goals, and they are normal. So where are we going with this? Everything sounds pretty good in this patient. Which of the following will offer this patient the greatest reduction in her risk for future cardiovascular events, so one thing that they do love on the board exams is always going to be uh, talking about risk stratification. You know, and a lot of my buddies are cardiologists, and they're always talking about this chart or this criteria. What will reduce their risk? Would it be this lab? Would it be this imaging? So let's look at the choices here together. Um, which ones could I knock off the bat? I would say I'm not a big fan in this case of culture scene. You know. If they're going to ask colchicine on the board exams, I mean, throw me some gout. That's going to be the the no-brainer right there. But there are some very unique times we use colchicine when we talk about rheumatological diseases. Can anyone name a unique way to use colchicine in a rheum disease? You know what? One would be Bichette's. Yeah, that kind of weird vasculitis. That's a small, medium, and large vessel. We use colchicine there. Anyone else? Yeah. Did someone say periodic fever? I thought I heard someone say that. So when we talk about familial Mediterranean fever, that's another time I've seen colchicine being used besides gout. But in regards to cardiovascular disease, no, it's not going to be colchicine. Uh, Folic acid, probably not. It's really hard to be folic acid, you know, deplete here in the United States. And the only time I ever see folic acid being used on the boards is when you're on what drug? That's right. Methotrexate. Because how does it work? It inhibits what enzyme? Dihydrofolate reductase. Yeah, you got it. So, we give folic acid. Um, Would you be giving vitamins? You know what I mean? In the ICU now, everyone's getting vitamin C, apparently, you know. (laughs) But, uh, you know, when we think about uh, vitamin E and C, I think we both think about the antioxidant effect that they will have. But there is really no convincing evidence that they will reduce the risk of cardiovascular events in the future. So, you know what, I would be kind of bullied into picking what influenza vaccine which is the correct answer. And why am I making a big stink about this is because like I said earlier, you know, medicine is integrated. It integrates it with pulmonary, it integrates it when we talk about infectious disease, and influenza vaccine, you know, I just can't begin to say especially right now. Right now when we talk about COVID-19, you know, this winter coming up, I don't know when you're going to be watching this video in the 2020 winter, we're going to have influenza season again, and you know if we get a second wave of COVID-19, that's a lot of you know viruses that are going to do a number on us. So it's important to take that vaccine. And of course, you know COVID-19 is looking for people who have cardiovascular disease. They're going to have a tough course. So the last thing you want to do is not have them vaccinated for influenza virus. And on top of that, pregnant or no pregnant. You definitely want to get your influenza vaccine if you are immunocompromised of course you're going to use the non-live virus by far and all this data over here and i'll read a couple of the bullet points this is from the american heart association and the acc the american college of cardiology if you get influenza vaccine it's associated with a 36 percent lower risk of major cardiovascular events compared to people who who are not vaccinated. So maybe I I took a moment to give my own opinion there, but this is definitely a great board question uh, that you should be familiar with. All right, so now let's talk about the impact of cardiovascular disease. You know, these slides are a little bit old, maybe a little bit more than a little bit, but the the data here, as far as what are gonna be things that are modifiable and non-modifiable as far as risk factors, they haven't changed. I just think that I love the way it's presented here. So, Cardiovascular disease, what a surprise, even in 2005 and year 2020, is, according to the CDC, the number one cause of death in both men and women in the United States of America. And back then, look at that, almost a million in 2005. You can imagine what it is right now. And why am I making a big stink about this is that because of COVID-19, you know, a lot of people are not going to the ER when they have signs of stroke, when they have things that worrisome for an MI, because they're afraid of the virus. And a big headline right now is, where did all the heart attacks go, you know? So, it, it is really scary. So, maybe I'm giving my opinion now, but it is important to realize that, you know, despite all the different infections that we're encountering as a society, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in our country. So it's very, very important that we are aggressive in treating and managing these patients. I did it again, I'm on a soapbox, sorry about that. So (laughs) the incidence of new heart attacks, you know, back in 2005 was almost 600,000 per year. This has nearly doubled, okay? When we talk about new strokes back then, you could imagine if it was 500,000 then, it's near, it nearly, nearly doubled. So, you know, we're paying much more attention to this. The people are getting older in age. So, of course, we're having more of these cases. And, you know, one of the reasons questions get on board exams is how much does it cost our country? And back in 2005, we we're spending almost $400 billion a year. That number way up there, way up there. And of course, this is going to be when we talk about heart disease and talking about, um, cerebral vascular accidents, (CVA) strokes, when we talk about these numbers. So I think that, I take it back, I don't even think, I know there is a changing paradigm when we talk about atherosclerosis. You know, we know now that it is a diffuse disease. It's not a focal disease. You know, I think that in the olden days, hey, let's stent the LAD and you should be good. And the answer is "Mm, not really. If you have disease in the LAD, then you're definitely going to have disease in other areas, whether it's going to be the carotid arteries, whether it's going to be in the arteries feeding the lower extremities. So PAD, CBA, CAD, they're all together. So we have to treat it as a whole, as a diffuse, rather than only focusing on one segment of the artery. And when we talk about treatment, it definitely involves assessment, and the big thing is the reduction of the global cardiovascular risk factors. And we're gonna target that, and we're gonna talk about that today. And needless to say, that treatment should begin early. Treatment should begin early. So let's talk about those modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. This is gonna be data from the National Cholesterol Education Program, the ATP3 guidelines, of what are gonna be some of these risk factors. And we do this even to this day. So of course, what do we want to focus on? It's going to be things that are modifiable. So number one, it's going to be, you know, you definitely want to know, do they smoke? Smoking is highly associated with so many things. It's associated with poorly controlled rheumatoid arthritis. It's associated with cervical cancer in females. It's associated with bladder cancer. And of course, why not cardiovascular disease? So please Always ask about it. Look at it when you're reading the vignettes to see if that's something to target when you talk about modifiable risk factors. Hypertension. I do have some slides on this, and you know, because of the JNC8 guidelines, and you know what I'm talking about when we talk about those patients who are going to be above the age of 65, and we talk about blood pressure goals according to the JNC8, we can let that blood pressure rise uh, quite a bit in our uh, elderly patients, but you know, the ACC, AHA had their own guidelines and they have what they call stage one and stage two hypertension, and they are definitely more aggressive. And so let's talk, we'll be talking about these um, two guidelines during our time together here as one of the modifiable risk factors, but please get your patients to blood pressure goal. Uh, diabetes, this is something where when I teach endocrinology, it's definitely going to be in the endocrine section when we talk about Blood pressure goals and, and glucose goals. But that is a really hot topic, isn't it? Because when we talk about the oral hypoglycemics, it's really confusing now because of the fact that many of these SGL2 inhibitors that stands for sodium glucose linked transported two inhibitors, you know, are getting very specific FDA approvals. The big one out there, I'm gonna use a brand name, is Jardiance. You know, Jardiance got the FDA approval to reduce cardiovascular mortality. And this is where, you know, endocrinologists and cardiologists are working like, hey, who should be on these drugs? When should we start these drugs? But, you know, I just want to say, but if you gave me a type 2 diabetic and you had to start an oral hypoglycemic and everything was even, it still is going to be metformin. It's still going to be metformin for your board exams, okay? Um, definitely, you want to think about the things like obesity, you definitely wanna encourage weight loss, physical inactivity, and of course, diet. All these things are gonna play a huge role in there. And let's just be honest, you could put another bullet point here and put what? Sleep, you know what I mean? Sleep is important when we talk about the quality and the quantity of sleep. Uh, when we talk about non-modifiable risk factors, I mean you should know them because when we talk about different scoring and risk stratification uh, you know, systems, they do talk about these non-modifiable ones, but of course, age is you. And also, when we talk about gender. And I'm gonna actually spend, I think it's the next slide, I get really passionate about this, is that we really underestimated how important it is to identify cardiovascular disease in women. And I'm gonna have a whole slide about that, and we'll talk about that shortly. So here are the 2018 updates in regards to epidemiology and risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So when we talk about the United States mortality rate, mortality rate from cardiovascular disease, stroke, PVD, hypertension, CHF has steadily declined over the past decade, 33% from 1999 to 2009. So this is going to be very important, like we're talking about over here is that these are going to be the incidents. And this is going to be talking about mortality. And so there's gonna be a little difference just in case you are thinking back a few slides. You know, and this is likely because of better prevention, and better acute care efforts. And so although mortality of cardiovascular disease is decreasing, cardiovascular disease prevalence is increasing, and that's what I was saying. I should have just been patient And hospitalizations for cardiovascular-related diseases have steadily continued to rise. No, I mentioned about those blood pressure guidelines, and here they are. So in 2017, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association came up with these new definitions on the left. So a normal blood pressure is what we all remember, 120 over 80. And elevated blood pressures, when you think about the systolic going from 120 to 129, now we talk about stage one and stage two hypertension. So stage one hypertension is going to be a systolic of 130 to 139 with a diastolic of 80 to 89. Stage two is anything above 140 and the diastolic anything above 90. Now we're going to compare these to the eight guidelines right next to it. And the eight guidelines are really easy to, let's just say the word, memorize, because pretty much everyone is going to be less than 140 systolic, less than 90 diastolic. And that's everyone, less than 60, CKD, diabetes. It was really easy to understand. But if you're greater than the age of 60 to 65, you know, definitely what do we want is to have a systolic less than 150 and a diastolic less than 90. And that's a pretty high systolic. And people were questioning this. And this is what led to what's called the SPRINT trial, which is going to be on the next slide, where they really targeted patients over 75 years of age and saying, hey, let's try to be really aggressive with them and try to get a systolic blood pressure, whoa, less than 120, and let's see how that turned out. But many people ask me, well, hey, Dr. Raj, you know, for for board exam purposes, which one would I use? You know, for internal medicine, we'll, we'll probably use the JNC8 because these were geared towards the internist, right? that when we talk about the ACC AHA guidelines, that's a really unique population of patients, which are people targeting, you know, cardiovascular disease and those risk factors. So they may not be as applicable to the wider range of internal medicine patients. So, you know, if they were to ask you a very specific question, they would have to state in the vignette that in regards to the ACC AHA guidelines, or according to the JNC8, then that's the only way they could you know, appropriately ask a question if they want you to memorize what cutoffs are. So let's talk about this SPRINT trial. So I'm sure many of you have gone over this in your journal clubs. This is classic. So when we talk about this, it's going to be a randomized trial of intensive versus standard blood pressure control. So what were the conclusions here? I'll spare you guys all the details. You know, I'm going to read this to everyone. Among patients at high risk for cardiovascular events, but without diabetes. They always ask about that. Targeting a systolic pressure of less than 120 as compared to less than 140 resulted in lower rates of fatal and non-fatal major cardiovascular events and death from any cause, although significant higher rates of adverse events were observed in the intensive treatment group. So I love these three pictures that summarize what was going on. So if you were going to be in the intensive group, systolic had to be less than 120, standard less than 140, and of course, you needed more medications, almost three medications here versus 1.8 over here, and in the patients in the intensive group, sure, you had less MI, ACS, stroke, decompensated heart failure compared to standard, but when you look at the side effects for being on these medications, more hypotension, more syncope, more electrolyte abnormalities, more kidney failure, uh, orthostatic hypotension, balls were not seen to be increased, and orthostatic hypertension decreased. So there were side effects of these. But um, I think that it's good that you're aware of this trial. It's often, you know, commonly quoted and mentioned, whether it be on rounds or on the boards. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.